Heavenly Father, I pray that you would remove me today, that you would replace me with your word and Jesus, and may he be lifted high. We ask this in your name, amen. So last week, John so eloquently uh, taught us from Jonah 4 and showed us how Jonah used Exodus 34. And if you thought that we had just gone through this last week, that same passage for a prayer and scripture reading, you're not confused. It's intentional. Um, it's because we saw that Jonah got upset about God's character and his mercy. And in the end, he doesn't respond at all to God's questions or compassion. Today, though, we get to see how King David uses the exact same phrase and passage about God's compassion and mercy, and unlike Jonah, he responds. So in a study from 2017, it was found that 67% of Americans believe that they are sinners. The common perception of that sin, when asked what they thought sin was, was, well, you know, no one's perfect. I'm, I'm only human. People in general think very little of sin, except when it affects the welfare of society or themselves personally have been sinned against. But I want to submit something to you today. That is an offense against God. It is hardly ever deemed worthy of notice. But as that offense against God, it strikes at him whatever sin. Do we view our sin in this way? Here's my prayer for us today. There is no sin that is too big that through confession, God will not forgive and restore and renew the sinner. I'm going to repeat that one more time, because this is really good news for us, that there is no sin that is too big that through confession, God will not forgive and restore and renew the sinner. I'm going to be a little vulnerable here. This psalm, chapter 51, has really convicted me in a way that I actually haven't been in a while. And as I get further and further away from the date that I was saved, and the gospel of the good news that Jesus gives comes into play in my life each and every single day, I find myself sometimes losing some of the weight that my sin carries, and how I should carry it, and then who it ultimately is against. The forgiveness that is freely given can is oftentimes taken for granted. This is a great chapter to show us how we should view our sin and humbly come before God in confession. So our text today, if you want to turn to Psalm 51, is the fourth of the seven so-called penitential psalms. Now, we've been in book two most of the summer, and if you actually have been paying attention, uh, you should be going, well, shouldn't we be in chapter 50? No, we're going to get to chapter 50 later. Um, I was just on the schedule for chapter 51, so we're going to skip 50. We'll come back to it, okay? Um, and this one, though, is the first one that's been clearly identified and marked as being written by King David. And as we read this psalm, it is focused on confession and repentance of personal sin. John Piper said once about this chapter, what makes a person a Christian is not that he doesn't get discouraged, and it's not that he doesn't sin and feel miserable about it. What makes a person a Christian is the connection that he has with Jesus Christ that shapes how he thinks and feels about his discouragement and his sin and his guilt. King David has set forth a great example of this that we can model our lives against. And to really get at the heart of this penitential psalm, we must first understand why it was written. Thankfully, for us, King David actually told us when and why it was written. So if you see, right before the song actually begins, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this account is written in great detail in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And if you'd like to turn there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to 
go a little bit into depth into this, but I'm going to summarize it for us. And from this passage in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, I want us to see and observe two things from these two passages, or two chapters, that will help us really fully understand King David's confession in chapter 51. The first one is this, observation number one, observing David's horrendous and heinous sins. Point number two, then, is how does God respond to his sin? So, in summary, we'll start with King David's sin. Charles Spurgeon said this about this passage once. Searching through the whole of Scripture, or at least through the Old Testament, I do not know where we have the record of a worse sin committed by one who yet was a true child of God. So let's start with the summary here. It's springtime, which back then was actually the time that the kings went out to war. So instead of going out to the battle, David finds himself in Jerusalem instead of being with the army and the ark and his generals. So he sent Joab to fight the Amorites. Now one day, while David was at home, instead of being out at battle, he was taking a stroll on his roof. And then there he sees a beautiful woman who is bathing nearby. David is really smitten, and he sends someone to figure out who this woman was. And it turns out that it was Bathsheba, the wife of one of David's men, Uriah the Hittite. So David then sends this messenger, and he brings Bathsheba back to him. They sleep together, and Bathsheba becomes pregnant. Now David was in real trouble now. Upon hearing this information, David began to plot how he could fix the matter without any public shame. Now, David's first idea in doing this was to attempt to have Uriah come back home from the war, from the battle, and to be with his wife, and then he would send him back off to, to the battle. But that didn't work, because Uriah didn't feel right going down to see his wife while the Ark of the Covenant and the army and his brothers were out battling in the field. So David then tried to get him drunk so that he would go and be with his wife. And then if that would happen, then he could pass the baby off as Uriah's. But this also didn't work. So David finally then decides that he would kill Uriah. The king would do this by sending him into the fiercest frontline battle that Israel had at the time. And to compound things and make this even worse to some extent is the fact that Uriah actually held the letter that inscribed his death sentence on him to Joab. Uriah is killed, and the news is sent to the king and to Uriah's widow, Bathsheba. David finally gets what he wants in the end. He covered it all up, and he covered his sin up, but he left a wake of death and destruction behind him. And if we see in verse 25 of chapter 11 there, one of David's responses back to the messenger that gave him this was this. Do not let this matter concern you or displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him, being Joab. Did you notice how callous his response to his sin was? That he asked to encourage Joab. That it didn't matter at all. So, Bathsheba finds out that her husband had died. She went through the traditional grieving period, and after that was over, she became David's wife. He sent for her, she became David's wife, and bore him a son. And it looks like he gets away with it. But sin had hardened his heart. One sin had led to another, to another, to another, to another. And all the while, his heart became more and more comfortable with what he was doing because his heart had been hardened. Are we all not like this? We all have tried at some point in our time to cover up our sin, which required us to sin more, and it dug us further deeper and deeper into that sin. While David was trying to publicly or privately take care of this matter, the only person that it mattered that knew was God. God had clearly seen what had transpired and knew all the motives that were happening. And we see that David's actions, what they had done to God in the last part of verse 27. 
But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This leads us now into our second observation. If God is displeased with King David, how will he respond? Well, God sent the prophet Nathan to King David with a parable that entices David to pronounce his own condemnation. And then Nathan says to him, you are that man. And asks, why have you despised the word of the Lord? David immediately breaks down and confesses that I have sinned against the Lord. Now, what we miss with all of this, just reading through this passage, is that there was actually a lot of time that transpired between the summary of when he slept with Bathsheba, Uriah died, and then Nathan the prophet came. There was at least 10 months. There was a baby that was born. There was no confession on David's part. There was no repentance. There was no softening of his heart. He was so blinded by his own sin that he condemned the exact same actions that he himself had done. But then he finally gets it. And did you notice what his response was? It, it wasn't justification or rationalizing or even excusing. It was instantaneous repentance. God wasn't just fine, though, sending Nathan to show David his wrongdoings. He had more to actually say to him. And so Nathan says this, astonishingly, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Why is this so astonishing? King David sinned against Bathsheba, whom he had defiled, against Uriah, whom he had murdered, against all the soldiers who had, were murdered at the exact same time, against the friends and relatives of all of those that were slain, against his very own army, whose interests were endangered, against the church of God, who was scandalized. But the most important part, and I promise we're going to get into our text really soon, is what we see in Psalm 51, that it was against God alone and his word. I want to further press into this because if we don't recognize this point, then we don't understand fully how David's response to this can actually happen. We need to reinforce the severity of what King David had done and then the astonishing work that God did that displayed his steadfast love and mercy. King David broke at least three commandments. You shall not have any other gods before you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery. And for those broken commandments, God commanded then severe punishment for them. In Leviticus, in Exodus, in Numbers, the, the, the rationale or the, the verses actually state, if you've killed someone, then you shall be put to death as well. For adultery, Leviticus and Deuteronomy also say this, that if you sleep with another man's wife, that both of you shall be put to death. So hopefully you get the point that there is severe punishment, that King David stands condemned and guilty before a just and holy God, which the law then required a punishment for. Death. Is anyone else confused how God could then say to him, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die? Was David special? Was he, was he any different than all of us? How can God be both righteous and the one who justifies murderers, rapists, adulterers, and the list of sins go on and on that all of us fall into? Thankfully, Paul in Romans 3 shares how this can happen. That Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the time, present time, so that he might be ju both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul uses the exact same phrase here. 
that 2 Samuel has, that God passes over sin because of Jesus Christ. And now we can see how God's response to David and he passes over his sin, we can now move on into our passage in our text in chapter 51 of Psalm to see then how King David responds to his own sin now that his heart has been softened by God. There's five ways that David confesses and, and responds to his sin in chapter 25. The first one is that he pleads for forgiveness in verses 1 and 2. He then uh, um, it, he does his confession of his sins in verses 3 through 5. He asks for restoration in verses 6 through 9. There's inward renewal, a restored re um, inward renewal and a cleansing that he's asking to happen. And then lastly, there's humble worship, 14 through the end. Now what Psalm 51 describes is what David felt and thought as he laid hold of God's mercy. Some might say that Christians after the death of Jesus do not pray and confess this way. That they shouldn't think and feel this way. I want to tell you something. I don't think that's right at all. In the view of the holiness of God and the evil of sin, it is fitting for us that we appropriate and apply what he bought for us by prayer and confession every day. As Jesus said in Matthew, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Point number one. David models a biblical view of how to plead for forgiveness. This is in verse 1 through and 2. You can read along with me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 1 starts with a remarkable phrase, have mercy on me. This is a plea of an individual who knows that they are guilty. This is from a person who has no right or claim to ask for pardon. David knows that he has committed multiple heinous crimes that are punishable by death. He now stands condemned in front of an almighty and just God pleading for mercy. Now, what's really interesting here, to get a little nerdy, is that David doesn't use the most common name for God here, which is Yahweh. He actually uses Elohim. This is the very first time that David refers to God in this way in all of Psalms. David feels a distance from God. He's unable to use the most personal name that God revealed to his people. This shows us that when sin is, is needing to be confessed, that it damages our relationships and our relationship, more importantly, with him and, and makes us unable to be close to him. Have you ever felt that distance from God before when you sin? Or is your heart so hardened that you take very little notice of it at all. So moving on, how does he appeal for this mercy? It's because of God's steadfast love. Steadfast love, or hesed in Hebrew, is a covenant word. So for all of his unworthiness, David knows that he still belongs. Compare that to what the prodigal son's words were, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And if that wasn't enough, David now asks for God's tender warmth in the second use of the word mercy. One commentator uh, said this about the second word of mercy. It's an emotional term. It's used in Genesis 43:30 when Joseph's heart or his inmost being yearned for his brother. It's akin to the New Testament visceral word for being moved with compassion. So all of David's pleading here 
appeals to God's promises of who he is from Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He uses the exact same three nouns that God himself says that he forgives. Did you notice that in verses 1 and 2? Transgression, iniquity, and sin. He uses action verbs like blot out, wash me, and cleanse me. He's comparing himself to a filthy garment that needs cleansed. And he is guilty and sees himself unfit to stand before God, but he's asking God to hold true to the promises of what he said he would do. When, when you cry out for God's forgiveness, do you base it on his promises about himself and his character that he has revealed to you? And when was the last time that you sought God's forgiveness in the way David has in these first two verses? So that's point number one, that David models a biblical view of how to plead for forgiveness. Point number two, then, is that he now confesses his sin. This is in verses three through five. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So he says in verse 3 that he knows his transgressions. He simply doesn't just express general awareness of his sin, but contrition, which is a deep and sorrow that it's a commitment not to repeat that offense. He feels the immensity of his sin day and night. Do you feel this way about your sin? Have you ever felt this way about your sin? If we see how his behavior was before this in 2 Samuel 11, he didn't even think about his own sin. And it was out of sight until David, through Nathan, the prophet, opened his eyes to see his grievous sin. So it's completely natural for a Christian who is convicted of their sin to have it ever before them. David did, but he didn't just leave it in front of him. In verse 4, he moves into saying that against God only has he sinned. When David is trying, what David is trying to say is this. While our, our sin is against others, that when we see that every sin is a strike against God himself, it swallows up all other considerations. Now, very important point. This does not mean that you and I must not seek forgiveness of sin when we sin against someone else. We have a ton of scripture that actually talks about how we should do that. But when a believer comes and confesses to God, the response should be that I have done what is evil in the sight of God. This is a much higher standard than the world holds. And so by contrast to God's righteousness in verse 5, or 4, in verse 5 we see David conceding that his sin proceeds from a long-standing sinful nature. David sees now that what he did wasn't some sort of crazy life event that happened and then it was done and then was over with, but that it was his own character that was warped. He sees that sin had been there from the very beginning and there was no way around it because he was born into that sinful state. We must also see, too, that he's not justifying or making excuses for his sin. His crime was not some accidental mishap, but was an outworking of his inherently warped heart, a heart that sprang from faulty stock that could ultimately be traced all the way back to Adam. Do you view your sin as treason against God alone? And when was the last time that you confessed your sin by naming it and calling it what it was? 
Point number one was that David modeled a biblical view of how to plead for forgiveness. He then moves into point number two and confesses his sins. In point number three, we're going to go over in verses six through nine, is David seeks restoration and cleansing. Read, read along with me if you want. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. There is now a gulf between what God desires in verse 3 or 6 and what David just confessed in verses 3 through 5. God says that he delights in truth. And what did David just do? He exhibited that, actually, in those verses, in what he confessed. David was being truthful about his sin. He was calling it what it was. God is seeking a person whose external profession is consistent with his inward reality that is often kept hidden away in the inward being. I'm going to repeat that one more time. God is seeking a person whose external profession is consistent with the inward reality of his or her being that is often kept hidden away in the inward being. This kind of vulnerability allows God to actually then transform our inner self by teaching us wisdom in the secret heart. David understands that only divine wisdom can reveal his inner self's sins. So what he's doing is he's asking that God would continue to give him this revelation daily. David continues in verse 7 and asks to be purged with hyssop. There's two ways that you can take this. There's actually two rituals. The first is those with lepers. They would have sacrificial blood dipped in hyssop, and then they would be sprinkled on them. The second one is um, the ritual for someone that comes in contact with a dead body. So whatever way that we want to actually take those, I think what's most important is at the end of those pronouncements, it's this and you will be clean. You and I need this pronouncement. We have to. To be cleansed of sin and to be whiter than snow and all its consequences is to experience joy and restoration. The painful effects of sin are equated here with the crushing of bones in verse 8. What a vividly clear description of what it must feel like to be the focus of God's displeasure. Our displeasure, uh, our sins, should match God's displeasure at them. I'll say that one more time. Our displeasure at our sins should match God's displeasure at them. Since it was God who had done the crushing, it was clearly sin that damaged God's relationship or David's relationship with God. He's seeking restoration with his relationship with God and realizes that it will only happen if God takes the extraordinary step of hiding his face from his sins in verse 9. Now, for those of us that have been here for uh, a while, when we were back in book 1 of Psalm, Psalm 13 and 27, use the phrase, hide the face. And now when these statements were typically uh, made, it implies divine anger and um, rejection of the sinner. When God hides his face, the psalmist feels abandoned and distressed. David here, though, however, is asking God to hide his face not from David, but rather his, his sins. God chooses not to take our failings into account, but to blot them out, as verses 1 and 9 state. Such restoration is all in God's hand. Do you ask God to restore the broken relationship that 
has created a divide between you and God when you sin? Does your displeasure of your own sin and my sin match that of God's displeasure at them? If not, why? Point number one was David modeling this biblical view of how to plead for forgiveness. That moved him to point number two, that David confesses his sins. The one that we just went through, point number three, was that David seeks restoration and cleansing and receives it. This now leads him, because of our restored relationship with God, we can seek with confidence inward renewal. That's point number four. That because of our restored relationship with God, we can seek with confidence inward renewal. David knew that he needed to be restored back into a right relationship with God. And knowing that God had answered that restoration request, if you don't believe me, that's what 2 Samuel was all about. He forgave him. He wasn't dead. And he's actually writing this. And so now he begins to seek an inward renewal that only comes from God himself. Now, at this point, after reading through some of this, we might be pressed to think that what David has expressed so far would lead to despair and depression. But instead, if you read with me here in verses 10 through 13, it has actually enlarged his praying. Read with me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. So he starts off verse 10 with the word create. This is nothing less than a miracle. David is asking God to perform a miracle, a supernatural work in his own heart, something that only God can accomplish. The whole of David's spiritual being, as it were, up until this moment, had fallen into moral chaos. And he was in desperate need of a pure heart, a childlike assurance that he could approach his father with confidence. And only that could come from God and by a work of God. Only God can fix a heart that has been broken by the destructive effects of sin. Creation, then, is an act, an, an action that only God can take, and so David appeals to God to create a pure heart out of nothing. He's not asking God, Elohim, to reform him. There's nothing in him out of which a genuinely pure heart could be formed. He was born in sin, and his sin was always before him. David needs to be a new creation, to have his former self removed. We are all sinners like David, and so this prayer is what we all need. David moves on and continues in verse 11 to ask that the Holy Spirit would not be taken away from him. Knowing that if God was going to create in him a pure heart out of nothing, he knew that the Holy Spirit was necessary for this. Now, most commentators believe that he's referring to King Saul, who had the spirit removed from him. His fear, though, was not that his sin would remove him from the office of being king, but more intimately from being in God's presence. He wants to be near God. God wants to be near David. His titles, our titles, are meaningless in comparison to actually being near to God. Are you more concerned about your own title and your kingdom or anything else than you are of ensuring that you are in God's presence daily? This is a real struggle. But it leads to this in verse 12. David asks for the joy of his salvation to be restored. What a beautiful truth! Salvation brings joy. 
not happiness, which, right, depends on what is happening to you in that moment. I think that it's important for us to note that he is not praying to restore his salvation, but the joy of it. I'm going to get honest with you all again. This is something that, as an older Christian, that has grown up in the church, that I struggle with. How often do we allow our circumstances to reduce the joy of our salvation? I don't pray this way sometimes. We all need it, though. Now, some of us today, if this situation played itself out in front of us of what happened in 2 Samuel, we would actually probably be thinking to ourselves, was David even saved? If we were honest with ourselves. But let me say this. God alone judges men's heart. And God, through this psalm, is saying that he had not lost his salvation, but the joy of it. And we will also, when we sin and fail to confess and seek forgiveness... Once David's joy is restored, he is now teaching others God's way in verses 13. Do we think that we have sinned so heinously and horribly against God that he could never use us again? If so, we're wrong. This psalm is written for us, and this verse clearly answers our question. If we think that God could never use me, you don't know what I've done then you don't understand what Christ did on Calvary. You have underestimated the breadth and the height and the length and the depth of God's forgiveness and his supernatural power to revive and restore a sinner to the service in his kingdom work. So what's the condition of all of that? Conviction of sin, confession of sin, and contrition for sins. God then is able to use our testimony of brokenness and, re and restoration to draw others to himself. Do you see your sin as a way to lose the joy of your salvation? Have you ever asked God to restore that joy? Point number one. David models a biblical view of how to plead for forgiveness. Number two, that leads into David confessing his sins. Then point number three, David seeks restoration and cleansing. And because of that, point number four, which we just went through, was because our renewed and restored relationship with God, we can seek with confidence inward renewal. All of this leads to our fifth and final point. That great sin forgiven leads to public acts of praise and humble worship. Let me say that one more time. That great sin forgiven leads to public acts of praise and humble worship. I'm going to read from 14 through the end of the chapter if you would like to follow along with me. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then, you are in, then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered at your idol altar. So for Israel and for David, confession and restoration were never simply a private act. That in, it it involved the redeemed in public acts of joyous praise and proclamation as a response to their sin and forgiveness. Here, David's anticipation of deliverance leads to vows of public acts of praise. 
So if you see in verse 14, David once again goes and confesses his sin. Now he, again, he calls it what it is, his sin, what it is. He was a murderer. But what I want to say this is that he had not thought to come so near before, because up until that point, if you read back, it was all, oh God. But here he cries, oh God of my salvation. Faith grows by the exercise of prayer. He confesses sin more plainly than in the verses before, and yet he deals with God more confidently. No one but the king can reverse the death penalty. It is therefore a joy to faith that God is our king and that he is the author and the finisher of our salvation. No one but the king can reverse the death penalty. And then here comes the worship in verse 15. A great sinner forgiven makes a great singer. Do you believe that? A great sinner forgiven makes a great singer. It doesn't matter how bad your voice is. Sin has a loud voice. Do not get me wrong. But our joy and our thankfulness should be louder. We should not sing our own praises if we are saved. But our theme should be in the Lord, our righteousness, in whose merits we stand righteously accepted. Do you sing knowing that our God has forgiven us great sinners? In verse 17, God shows that he doesn't um, receive broken or defiled animals as sacrifices, but he always accepts broken hearts. Have you committed some heinous, even embarrassing sin against our Lord? The way back begins with a heart that is broken over your sin against a holy God. That is a sacrifice that God will never reject. He will then loosen your lips to praise and worship him through songs and praise of our righteous God. Thomas Watson once said, how far from being godly are those who scarcely ever shed a tear for sin? If they lose a near relation, they weep. But though they are in danger of losing God and their souls, they do not weep. How few know what it is to be in an agony for sin or what a broken heart means. So our passage ends with David now passing from prayer for himself to prayer for others. David knows that his sin had torn down and now in repentance and restoration prays for the building up. David pleaded for forgiveness and once he received that, he now prays for Jerusalem. Now the implication here is that David recognizes the effect that his sin had on his whole nation. Sin almost always has a much further reaching consequence than you've ever imagined. When we sin, the sin then so deceives us into thinking that if anyone gets hurt, it's, it's only going to be me. This is the deadly lie of sin. Do not be deceived, Embassy Church. Sin can and will impact our families, our church, our community, and our nation. Because of David's sin, he was concerned for and interceded on behalf of his own nation, Israel, as represented by Zion, the chief city and the place of God's temple. Once you have asked and sought God for forgiveness, have you used it as a way to publicly rejoice over your own forgiveness? Or have you kept it to yourself? Do you frequently intercede for your family, your church, community, and nation? So how do we bring this all together? David was a murderer and an adulterer. Jesus said these two things about 
those two things. He said, if you have committed hatred against your brother, you have murdered them in your heart. If you've looked at someone lustfully, then you've committed adultery in your heart. Both of those pronouncement of condemnation is death. Now, let's just take a brief moment for those of, in the, those of you in the room that might actually, with full conviction, t- say to me, well, Ryan, I can say rightly that I've done none of these two things before in my life. Okay, so let's lump all of us together then. Paul puts it this way in Romans 3, that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if we are all sinners, what's our judgment? Again, Paul, in a well-known verse, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We all stand condemned before a just God, guilty of sin against a holy, righteous God. We ourselves are not righteous. Our punishment for our sin is death. This is our parallel path to David. David saw that the sin problem had always been with him and that there was no way to solve it on his own if it was left to him. We all, myself included, since sin entered humanity through our first father, Adam, it's been something that we've been steeped in from our mother's womb. So then how do we accept this forgiveness? God's steadfast love, hesed. It's a covenantal word. But just like the covenant with Abraham, it all rested on God for action. See, God knew that we would run, that we would continue to sin, and we would continue to resist him. So the covenant that he made was not resting on our love back to him, but his love to us. Hesed is also, it's not just a feeling and a covenantal word, but it's an action word in Hebrew. God was moved to keep his covenant with his people. His steadfast love compelled him to send his one and only son to die so that as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is no sacrifice back then that David could give that would wash him from his murder and adultery. There is no sacrifice that we can do, there is nothing that we can do on our own that will fix our own brokenness. John Piper puts it this way. God sees from the time of David down to the centuries to the death of his son, Jesus Christ, who would die in David's place, so that David's faith in God's mercy and God's future redeeming work unites David with Christ. And in God's all-knowing mind, David's sins are counted as Christ's sins, and Christ's righteousness is counted as his righteousness. And God justly passes over David's sins. The death of the Son of God is outrageous enough, and the glory of God that it upholds is great enough that God is vindicated in passing over David's adultery and lying and murder. So for those of us that share in Christ's death, resurrection, and burial are linked to Christ's righteousness, so that just as he did with David, he passes over our sins— Because Jesus has purged us with hyssop from his blood and declared us clean, whiter than snow. We then, with gladness, can come and seek forgiveness freely, daily, knowing that the same God from Exodus that says this about himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding and steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We worship this same God 
who continually is keeping his steadfast love for us. He has sent his spirit then in which we cannot have taken away for those of us that are his. His spirit came and then sealed God's covenant with his people, us, his people. This is the same spirit who was there at creation, who still works today to create a new creation in all of us once we believe. This same spirit is also our helper who, like the prophet Nathan, can and will be used to convict us of our sin so that then we can seek God's forgiveness for our iniquity, transgression, and sin. For those of us that believe, we can have assurance that God has passed over our sins and extended his mercy to us. This allows us to freely come before him and seek forgiveness through confession. Don't run from this. Don't just throw out the pat answer of, yeah, I I get Jesus forgives me. We know the cost that was paid for our sins. God asks us to seek forgiveness, to be restored into a right relationship with him, to be renewed, and to worship him forever. Now, you don't know this for yourself. I plead with you. Know that there is no one who is sinless. And may God crush you to have the same displeasure he has for your sins so that you can see the sin you have committed are against him and that there is a punishment for all unless We freely accept his mercy according to his steadfast love that he displayed on the cross where his son took yours and my sins. Accept his mercy that compelled him to forgive you. Rejoice in the fact that Jesus' righteousness is now yours. We are new creations And we can now sing of his greatness because his forgiveness of our sins. And like David, he passes over our sins, which then brings us the joy of our salvation. Let's pray. O God, our merciful Father, by your holy law do you work in us to the true knowledge of our sins that our heart may be repentant, and that our soul humble before you. Blot out our iniquities with the blood of your Son. Cleanse our souls from the dark spots with which we have soiled them, and comfort us with the assurance of your grace. Build your church with us and our children, that your name may be glorified by many generations. Amen.